2: When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. Ultimatum Today is the 23rd of July 2014, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Despite the number of ominous warnings that had emanated out of the summit, Austro-Hungarian Foreign Minister Leopold von Berchtold remained largely in the dark about the fact that most capitals in Europe expected some sort of Habsburg response to Serbia in the coming days, specifically in the form of an ultimatum that would be unacceptable to her. Of the meeting of the 18th of July, when the Austrian ambassador to Russia, Count Zapri, met with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, and the two had danced around the issue without really revealing anything, Berchtold had been made aware of. Zapri's report back to Vienna suggested that the Russian foreign minister had known nothing of the plans for an ultimatum, when in reality, Sazanov had been trying to sound out the Hungarian and see what was in store for Serbia. Berchtold was thus confused when, on Tuesday the 21st of July, he received a memo from the now deeply offended Count Zappary, informing the foreign minister what the French president, Raymond Poincaré, had said to him. The numerous veiled threats Poincaré had thrown at Zappary, combined with the harsh tone and apparent awareness of Austrian plans, contrasted sharply with the conversation Zappary had had with Sazonov only a few days before. Berchtold reasoned that Poincaré's outbursts had more to do with his being a hothead, and his insistence that Russia would stand firm was thought to refer to the strength of the Entente in general, rather than its ability to coordinate a response to an ultimatum to Serbia. The really important meeting that had taken place between the German ambassador to Russia and Sazanov, in which Sazonov had made it clear by stating that, "...there must be no talk of an ultimatum would certainly have spelt it out for Berchtold in the plainest terms that the Entente was aware, and he would likely then have placed a new level of meaning onto Poincaré's comments that had been made earlier in the day. However, because Sazonov had spoken with the German ambassador to Russia, the report of the meeting did not reach Berlin until the morning of the 23rd of July, and didn't reach the desk of the German ambassador to Austria-Hungary, and thus the place where Habsburg officials would be able to read its contents, for another week after that. In other words, by either luck or incredible misfortune, Berchtold's ultimatum plan managed to dodge the significant warning signs to an almost laughable degree. It had the result of fooling Vienna with the illusion that its secret remained a secret, and misleading it towards a course it could not come back from. Sergei Sazonov, the Russian foreign minister, had sent off a strongly worded message to Russia's ambassador in Vienna, which arrived at 4 a.m. on Thursday the 23rd of July. Sazanov's dispatch contained the warning that Austria was preparing a great blow and intends to annihilate Serbia, with the instructions that the Russian ambassador should warn Vienna, cordially but firmly, of the dangerous consequences which must follow any such measures incompatible with the dignity of Serbia. Sazanov also noted to his ambassador that from my discussions with Poincaré, it clearly emerges that France will also not tolerate a humiliation of Serbia. Though Sazanov could not convince Poincaré of his decisiveness and strength of character, the Russian foreign minister was confident that the French president would stand by whatever action Russia took. Sazanov concluded by telling his ambassador that Poincaré would shortly send out a similar warning to Vienna, so as to demonstrate the solidarity of the Entente and hopefully dissuade Vienna from its course of provocative action. Neither the French president nor Sazonov had made it clear when they had arrived at the decision to formulate the strategy of essentially making their own anti-ultimatum ultimatum, as Jean MacMeekin in his book July 1914 called it. True to Poincaré's reputation, his language was stronger within his dispatch to Vienna than Sazonov's had been. The French ambassador to Vienna was instructed that, No avenue must be neglected to prevent an Austrian demand for retribution or any set of conditions foisted on Serbia which might be considered a violation of her sovereignty or her independence. René Viviani, the pacifist Prime Minister of France and also its Foreign Minister, was horrified by the language within the warning and sent it off from the switchboard of the battleship France in the early hours of Friday morning, the 24th of July, only with great reluctance. However, though they would later claim to have been in the dark as to Austro-Hungarian intentions, they were genuinely in the dark about the exact dates that the Habsburgs had designated to carry the ultimatum and its time limit. This is proven by the fact that the French anti-ultimatum didn't arrive in Vienna until the morning of Friday the 24th of July. On the other hand, the Russian version of the anti-ultimatum did reach the Russian embassy in Vienna on Thursday afternoon at 3pm and the Russian official present charged off to the ballplatz to present it to Berchtold, With Berchtold scheduled to orchestrate the delivery of the ultimatum within hours, would he reach the Habsburg foreign minister in time? Technically speaking, the Russian official did reach Berchtold in time, but he was ushered away from his office and informed by his secretary that the Austrian foreign minister was busy, and to return at 11am the next morning on Friday the 24th of July. Because the ultimatum was due to be delivered within an hour that the Russian official had knocked on Berchtold's door, and because 10am on Friday the 24th of July was the designated date and time that Vienna would make an official announcement and inform the capitals and statesmen of Europe, in case they didn't know already, about its decision to deliver the ultimatum, Berchtold's secretary certainly wasn't lying. Berchtold was busy. He was in the process of finalising the details with the Austrian ambassador to Serbia, Giesel von Gieselingen, It would be Gieselingen, the same man who had been present during Nikolai Hartwig's death, and who was rumoured by the Serb populace to possess an electric chair that could kill those who he wanted disposed of without leaving a single trace, that would deliver the ultimatum to the Serbian Prime Minister, Nikola Pesic, shortly. Residing in Belgrade, Gieselingen had been thoroughly briefed to prepare for every eventuality during the process of delivery, in case the wily Serbian Prime Minister tried to wriggle out of replying to the ultimatum. As the minutes ticked by, Gieselingen prepared to bring Pesic the document which would transform the European atmosphere and confirm the suspicions of the Entente. For Burkdald, the entire day of Thursday, the 23rd of July, had been a troublesome one filled with ill omens. First, he had a worrying conversation with the Chief of Staff, Konrad von Hötzendorf in which he plied Conrad with a number of strategic questions that really should have been considered many days before. In the early afternoon on July the 23rd, when the two dined in their usual fashion, Bertold perhaps realized for the first time that within two days his country would be at war. So wrapped up had he been in the process of arriving at this state of affairs, it seemed to only have dawned on him now that his country should be prepared for all eventualities, including those which he did not wish to consider out of fear. Berchtold asked Conrad what would happen if Serbia complied with the demands of the ultimatum after the deadline had passed, while Serbian forces, in other words, were in the process of invading the country. Conrad believed it was unlikely, but upheld that in the event of such an occurrence, Serbia would pay for the Austro-Hungarian mobilisation. But Conrad was taken aback by Berchtold's second question, referring back to a conversation he'd had with the Italian ambassador almost a fortnight before. Berchtold claimed that Italy knew more than it was letting on about Habsburg plans, and that Rome was indeed planning to strike while Vienna was preoccupied. Conrad would have greeted such a revelation with consternation, since it was well known to him that the Germans had been urging Berchtold to pacify the Italians in the event of war, by ceding territory if necessary. Burchtold had not done any of this, and was now informing the head of the military arm of the country that a two-front war might arise, and asking him what the state should do about it. Seemingly out of the blue, as if it were an afterthought, Berchtold asked Conrad what would happen if Italy intervened. In this case, Conrad replied, Austria-Hungary should not mobilise at all. Had either Berchtold or Conrad known that news of the ultimatum had leaked out to France, Russia, Britain and Italy, rather than just possibly leaked out to the latter, then they would have had even more to stress over. However, what Berkdold and his chief of staff remained unaware of also was the fact that, as early as Wednesday the 15th of July, warnings about the ultimatum plans had reached Belgrade, and that on Friday the 17th, the Serb ambassador in London had warned the government that "...the way is being prepared for diplomatic pressure upon Serbia, which may develop into an armed attack." The revelation alarmed Serbian Prime Minister Pešić enough to inform the Austrian ambassador Gieselingen that, the Serbian government are prepared to comply at once with any request for a police investigation and to take any other measure compatible with dignity and the independence of state. Shockingly, in an example of his knowledge of Austrian intentions, not to mention a demonstration of the capabilities of Serb intelligence that Vienna could only have imagined in its worst nightmares, Pesic informed Britain's minister to Belgrade that, a demand on the part of Austro-Hungarian government for appointment of a mixed commission of inquiry for suppression of nationalist societies and for censorship of the press could not be acceded to since it would imply foreign intervention in domestic affairs and legislation. The establishment of such an inquiry and the effective controlling of Serbia's military and intelligence services to increase its effectiveness was one of the key demands of the ultimatum. The fact that Pesic was able to allude to it at all suggests that Vienna's plans had been dramatically intercepted by foreign intelligence, and that the situation may have been even worse than has been thus far depicted. The demand that Serbia hand over its services and effectively sacrifice its sovereignty for the sake of Austrian satisfaction was just one demand amongst a heap of others that even the most positive European statesman would be able to perceive as impossible to fulfil. The ultimatum began by referring to the commitment Serbia had made in the aftermath of the Bosnian crisis, in which Belgrade committed itself to conform to the decisions that the powers may take in conformity with the Article 25 of the Treaty of Berlin. In deference to the advice of the great powers, Serbia undertakes to renounce from now onwards the attitude of protest and opposition, which she has adopted with regard to the annexation since last autumn. She undertakes, moreover, to modify the direction of her policy with regard to Austria-Hungary, and to live, in future, on good neighbourly terms with the latter. It then continued by stating that Serbia had not fulfilled this commitment, and that instead, Serbia "...has permitted the criminal machinations of various societies and associations directed against the monarchy, and has tolerated unrestrained language on the part of the press." the glorification of the perpetrators of outrages and the participation of officers and functionaries in subversive agitation. It has permitted an unwholesome propaganda in public instruction. In short, it has permitted all manifestations of a nature to incite the Serbian population to hatred of the monarchy and contempt of its institutions. This culpable tolerance of the royal Serbian government had not ceased at the moment when the events of the 28th of June last proved its fatal consequences to the whole world. the ultimatum continues to explain that Vienna can stand by no longer, since, armed with the evidence supplied by the investigation, the above-mentioned results of the magisterial investigation do not permit the Austro-Hungarian government to pursue any longer the attitude of expectant forbearance which they have maintained for years in face of the machinations hatched in Belgrade, and thence propagated in the territories of the monarchy. The results, on the contrary, impose on them the duty of putting an end to the intrigues which form a perpetual menace to the tranquillity of the monarchy. But how would Vienna go about ensuring that this menace be ended? The text explains, The imperial and royal government see themselves compelled to demand from the royal Serbian government a formal assurance that they condemn this dangerous propaganda against the monarchy. In other words the whole series of tendencies, the ultimate aim of which is to detach from the monarchy territories belonging to it, and that they undertake to suppress by every means this criminal and terrorist propaganda. In order to give a formal character to this understanding, the Royal Serbian Government shall publish on the front page of their official journal, of the 13th to the 26th of July, the following declaration. The text goes on to list a series of statements that the Serbian Government must adhere to. Including a repudiation of all Serb irredentist organisations, and that Serbia was essentially sorry that citizens of its country committed the act of assassination on June the 28th, acts which Belgrade, of course, does not agree with. Belgrade then has to absolve itself of interfering in the peoples of Austria-Hungary, and that henceforth Serbia would warn Vienna of any terrorists that tried to alter the state of the dual monarchy by forcing its elements to break away, and that Serbia itself will aid in suppressing these terrorists wherever they reside. Only then does the ultimatum actually list a series of demands that the Serb government had to undertake. The most stringent and controversial of these included To suppress any publication which incites the hatred and contempt of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and the general tendency of which is directed against its territorial integrity. To take judicial proceedings against accessories to the plot of the 28th of June who were on Serbian territory. Delegates of the Austro-Hungarian government will take part in the investigation relating thereto. To furnish the imperial and royal government with explanations regarding the unjustifiable utterances of high Serbian officials, both in Serbia and abroad, who, notwithstanding their official position, have not hesitated since the crime of the 28th of June to express themselves in interviews in terms of hostility to the Austro-Hungarian government. To accept the collaboration in Serbia of representatives of the Austro-Hungarian government, for the suppression of the subversive movement directed against the territorial integrity of the monarchy. That last point was the one referred to by Pesic, and it was the demand most often highlighted, and was the demand most often highlighted as an example of a breach of Serbian sovereignty. However all of the terms could be labelled controversial. No demand contains anything less than caustic accusations and the wider theme appears to be the placing of joint responsibility for maintaining the integrity of the Habsburg Empire and combating the irredentist threat on both Serbia and Austria-Hungary. In other words, Vienna would be joined by its greatest enemy in the Balkans in a forced cooperative relationship founded on the threat of force. Seeing all of this, The Ultimatum is free to view on numerous open source websites, It is no small wonder that Berchtold failed to share the contents with anyone until the text was past the editing process. Vienna wanted the ultimatum rejected. It wanted the Serbs to say no, so the real goal of the entire process could begin. War. This war, the brimming and now dominant war party in the Habsburg Empire believed, was a war that their state needed, for revitalization's sake. It was a war it would win, and it was a war that had to happen or they would never get peace from the Balkan neighbour. Whatever differences Habsburg statesmen may have debated over, such as the post-war arrangement and issues like annexation, partition, or the ceding of territory to other Balkan powers, the war party, as its name suggested, all wanted war with Serbia. However, while it is important to remember this fact, it is also important to bear in mind that Vienna did not want a world war, world war would hopefully be prevented by German deterrence and Russian timidity, though the previous days had shown, unbeknownst to the Habsburgs, that this final trait no longer existed in the Russian frame of mind. Far from being willing to bow to the combined pressure of the central powers, as in the Bosnian crisis, Russia and France had already prepared a joint strategy, a military response, should the anticipated ultimatum to Serbia proceed. Up until the moment that the word of France on Russia's official reply was received, Berchtold could have passed the whole event off as yet another Balkan crisis, but with Austro-Hungarian primary participation this time. However, once he crossed this line, the line he remained so unaware of, the seriousness of the situation only then became clear. In a time when neither side appeared willing or able to back down, this Balkan crisis transformed only now, in Berchtold's mind, into what we understand as the July Crisis. To us, since we've been following its stages since its ignition, Berchtold's step seems like the final act in the twilight of peace. But to Burchtold, it would have seemed as though every illusion had been shattered, and that the only course open to the established, yet in many ways, not-so-solid alliance blocks, was war. Such realities would only reveal themselves to Berchtold in the future, For now, though, let's remember where we left the Habsburg ambassador to Belgrade, Giesel von Gieselingen, as he readies himself to hand over the ultimatum to the Serbian government. Some last-minute complications had arisen in the previous 24 hours. Giesel was informed that the Serbian Prime Minister, aware of Austrian intentions, and seemingly with a better handle on Vienna's timetable than France or Russia, had stayed on leave rather than return to the capital, and had cynically placed the Serbian finance minister, in charge in his absence. In addition, Giesel was told to delay the delivery of the ultimatum to 6 p.m. rather than 4 p.m. because it was feared that the French were leaving St. Petersburg later than their intel had previously suggested. Of course, because the French and Russians had prior knowledge of Austrian plans anyway, such delays made no difference. Berchtold couldn't delay indefinitely since Conrad was at him to ensure that the forty eight hour time limit expired at a time in the day that enabled a smooth mobilization process. If Berchtold left the delivery until nine or ten p m, for example, then that would mean that Conrad would have to organize mobilization at that time on Saturday, the twenty fifth of July. Such difficulties would slow the whole process down. And in a time when speed was everything, Berchtold and Conrad knew mobilisation would have to occur as early in the day as possible. 6pm was later than Conrad wanted, but it was the best that Berchtold could do. When Gisel von Gieselingen arrived at the Serbian Foreign Ministry shortly before 6pm, on this day 100 years ago, the contents of what he held in his hand was the worst-kept secret in Europe. The process that brought the Habsburg Empire to the construction of the ultimatum had been fraught with embarrassing complications, exploited by Stefan Tiza, the Hungarian minister-president, and exasperated by the harvest-leave issue, which ensured that Austria-Hungary couldn't throw its weight behind any belligerent proposals or take solid military action. In short, with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, 25 days old, the Austrian response time appeared almost comedic even though the implications of its response were deadly serious. Just like the process that had brought Gisel to the front door of the Serbian Prime Minister's office, the way in which the Austrian ambassador to Serbia would deliver the ultimatum to the finance minister of the Balkan country would also be surrounded in farce. The Serbian finance minister, Dr. Laza Pachu, had been designated by Pejic to accept the incoming ultimatum. Because Vienna didn't know that Belgrade expected an Austrian delivery of such a document, or that its contents would be designed to be so harsh as to make acceptance nearly impossible, Pejic claimed he was away from the capital campaigning for the Serb presidential elections due to take place in the middle of August. Though Dr. Lazapachu had been filled in as to what was coming, he didn't speak French, a maddening fact for Giesel since the ultimatum had been constructed in that language. A translator had been called in from the nearby Franco Serbian office block. Pachu would thus not be in the dark, so Giesel wasted no more time. He produced the ultimatum. As the translator got to work, his eyes no doubt widening as he read and worked and began to ascertain its implications, Giesel emphasized the fact that a forty eight hour time limit existed on the document, spelling out the fact that it would expire by six p.m. on Saturday, the twenty fifth of July. If a satisfactory reply were not received by Vienna by that time, then Giesel said he would leave Belgrade with his legation staff. Pachu didn't require a translation in order to understand this last point. There would be war if the demands of the ultimatum were not met. Pachu initially refused to take the documents in hand, claiming that he didn't have the authority or qualifications to receive it on his country's behalf. Gisel said that Pachu complained that because there were elections on and many of the ministers were present, he was afraid that it would be physically impossible to convene a full cabinet meeting in time to decide on a matter of such evident importance. But Gisel was having none of it, and having expected such an excuse, replied that the return of the ministers to Belgrade in the age of railways, telegraph, and telephone in a land the size of Serbia could only be a matter of a few hours. Giesel then reminded Patchu that he had given plenty of hours' notice of the current meeting, and that if Pešić had wanted to be present, he very easily could have been. Perhaps Giesel may have been starting to realise why the Prime Minister wasn't present after all. Giesel made it easier for Pachu in any case when he stated that such logistical and governmental concerns were a private matter for the Serbian government, in which he has nothing to say. Pachu then resorted to a slightly hilarious tactic. Almost as a demonstration of his contempt for the country Gisel represented, the finance minister, in charge of representing the government while Pesic was absent, simply refused to accept the physical delivery of the ultimatum into his own hands. Outraged, and perhaps wanting to be taken more seriously, Giesel flung the document onto a nearby table, and exclaimed that both Pachu and Serbia could do what they liked with it, Kiesel then turned and left the room. He had played his part, however successfully, and now the ball was in Belgrade's court. After botching the construction process of the ultimatum, then proving unable to keep it a secret, Serbia then frustrated Austria-Hungary's attempt to make a solemn delivery of the ultimatum too. And it turned what Berchtold had surely imagined as a definitive moment in Serbia's reckoning into yet another Habsburg farce. Almost as soon as Giesel left, though, the mood became more serious. Pachu picked up the ultimatum from the table and shared its contents with the other two ministers who had been keeping quiet in an adjacent room. Reading over the terms, one can imagine Pachu being hardly able to believe that Vienna had actually delivered the ultimatum. With its demands and requirements being insulting at best, Serbia could not possibly accept the ultimatum, which was exactly what Berchtold knew, and Conrad hoped. Stefan Tiza's original request that the demands were to be harsh, but not so harsh that they would see we want war, were thrown out the window in favour of a document that burned with controversy and symbolism. It is difficult to overstate the significance of the event, as an unknown Serbian statesman held in his hand a document which, within hours, would be the most talked about piece of paper in the world, and, within days, would be the most lauded example of Austro-Hungarian belligerence and, within years, would be marked as the point where the old world ended and the new world began. Knowing what we know, it seems impossible that the refusal of the ultimatum and the subsequent Austrian military answer would result in anything but a Russian intervention and a dedicated German commitment to follow its faulty military script. But events were far from set in stone. As the Italians found out and spread the news through their wide-reaching channels, Sean McMeekin called the Italians the kingpin gossips of European diplomacy, and that title seems apt when one considers that by around 9pm Russian time, roughly 4 hours after the ultimatum had been semi-delivered to Pachu by Giesel, an attaché to the Italian embassy in St. Petersburg was informing the acting head of the Russian Foreign Ministry's Near Eastern Department, who was seated who was seated at a dining table as the farewell dinner party was winding down on board the France, that Austria Hungary has given a completely unacceptable ultimatum this day to Serbia. Almost simultaneously a note was brought to Sazanov, informing him that Count Zapperi had requested an hour long meeting with him the next day. There was no mistaking what all of this meant. Austria Hungary had carried out the deed after all. The ultimatum had been delivered. Berchtold was about to find out what Sazonov was made of. Knowing what they knew, it must have seemed incredible to Sazonov that Austria Hungary would pursue such a policy. Of course, Berchtold's interpretation of the world was vastly different to that of Sazonov. Where Berchtold saw a one on one easy victory against a troublesome neighbor, Sazonov saw an unavoidable widening of the war as an answer to the Austrian challenge. Where Berchtold saw Russian timidity ensured by German suggestive action, Sazanov saw the guarantee of French support for whatever transpired. Where Berchtold saw an ultimatum, Sazanov saw a step in a direction that surely led to a single destination. War